0: Welcome to Radical Shift, a podcast series sponsored by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington. This episode of Radical Shift features host Robert Marshall-Wells, Director of Communications for Elevate Health. Today's guest is Dr. Jesse Quizar, Assistant Professor of the School of Urban Studies at the University of Washington Tacoma. Now here's our host, Robert Marshall-Wells.
1: Hello, I'm Robert Marshall Wells, host for this episode of Elevate Health's Radical Shift podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Jesse Quizar, Assistant Professor in the School of Urban Studies at the University of Washington Tacoma. We call this particular series Radical Shift because our aim is to explore big and ambitious ideas that can directly affect the day-to-day health of Pierce County residents and the communities in which they live, work, and play. Dr. Quizar, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: It's so good to be here.
1: <laughs> all right. So let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What's home? What's hometown? Uh, your your job title, your history, all that good stuff.
2: Um, well, I, I've been working at UW Tacoma for two years now, um, and I am really excited to be here. I didn't I didn't have very much experience with the Pacific Northwest until I moved here. Mm-hmm. Most of my academic work is about Detroit mm-hmm. and about movements in Detroit, um, and I... Landed working in Detroit because I was doing um, community organizing in Mm. Denver, and I was working with an organization called Insight Women of Color Against Violence, Mm. Um, and we met every year in Detroit. And so I was after um, I don't know many years doing that. I I decided I I needed to really look at the movements that are in Detroit, really like study the kinds of work that was happening there. And so I, so in many ways, Detroit is sort of my heart home, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm from, from Denver.
1: I see. Okay, great. And the opportunity at UWT brought you west. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. During the pandemic.
1: Yeah. So you traded cold for wet.
2: It's it's (laughs) a little cold here too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's colder in Detroit, but okay. All right. Well, um, as you well know, vital conditions essential to a person's health and well-being include physical environment and economics and educational opportunities, access to healthy food and all of that good stuff. And um, I'm wondering, as um, someone who lives here now but uh, who has been around a little bit, what makes our area unique? What do you you think makes us um, stand out?
2: I mean one of the things that has been most exciting about being here for mm-hmm. me is um is the level of diversity of the city of Tacoma and sort of the long-termness of that diversity and by mm-hmm. diversity I mean like real genuine diversity right. where there is a really genuinely mixed group of people here and especially in certain neighborhoods like the Hilltop um where there is this long long history of um of, I would say, sort of a radical kind of integration, um, a forced integration in many ways, right? But there are have always been lots and lots of different kinds of folks because that has been like sort of particularly um, uniquely open space um, in, if we think about histories of redlining, um, that uh, the hilltop has always been a place where anybody was able to live. Um, and so I think that's that kind of... Diversity in the middle of what is historically and intentionally has been Mm -hmm. a very, very white region. Um, And and that, I think, means that spaces like those spaces in Tacoma, um, where there is a lot of diversity, um, and we're talking specifically of, like, you know, folks with, like, deep histories from— Black communities, from Vietnamese communities in right. particular, that makes those really, really precious spaces yeah. in the sort of wider
1: region. Right, right. So, as you mentioned, much, much of your research has been focused on Detroit uh, with specific, specific emphases on racial discourse and grassroots movements, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, how do you see some of that applied here in, in the Puget Sound region and in Tacoma specifically?
2: Well, um, Detroit's—I think—in a lot of ways, Detroit's a sort of unique place. It is, Uh, but I think that there's lessons that we can learn from the kind of work that's being done in Detroit that are applicable anywhere, and more specifically in places um, like Tacoma. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, some some of the things that I study in Detroit are the ways that grassroots movements um, claim land, and claim land and space in. Other in ways that are other than capital is what I would say. There's a lot of folks that, um, that do squatting mm, <laughs> or right. a lot of folks. I mean, Detroit's Detroit's a really particular place, right? Because there's, um, a lot of land that is, um, that's sort of unused, kind of unclaimed. It's, it's, abandoned it's, almost. it's, yeah, it's yes. abandoned. It's, um, it is sort of technically owned by city or county land banks, but the people who actually like care for that land are people in the neighborhood. And and one of the things I think that's beautiful about Detroit is because there's so much of that, you can really see what people would do. If mm-hmm. not, every little bit of space was kind of on some sort of, you know, propertyed lockdown yeah. um, and what kinds of imaginaries, what kinds of things people would really do. And what do people do? They grow a lot of food. Mm-hmm. They create spaces um, that I would call sort of spaces of togetherness, mm-hmm. you know, like places right. to recreate. Um, in the neighborhood I lived in Detroit, there was um, a field that folks had made into uh, like a place where people play horseshoes. And there was, you know, they built benches and they, you know, they had you, and it was a community space. It was yeah. a really important space, a gathering space. Yeah. Um You know, people do, and you would also see how quirky people are. People did some weird stuff. There was like, um, on a different place that I lived in Detroit, there was a block that had where people had made, um, kind of an informal park. Um, they called it Jurassic Park. They made a big sign about it (laughs) (laughs) and you know, you can see how quirky and strange people are, but in a fun way, right. Where people were like, this is what, this is what's moving us right now. And they bought, um, they bought a a mower together, one of those industrial kind of riding mowers. And, um, and maintained that park and cared for that park. Um, and so there was these, these land claiming practices in Detroit mm-hmm. um, that were not about ownership. They weren't about land valuation. I mean, they are about ownership in some ways, right? They're about like claims right. for sure, yeah. but they're not about um, speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're really about making sure that the space in the city is, is um, serving the needs mm-hmm. of the people who are directly there. Right um and that people's well-being is central to the project of what what the city should be about mm-hmm. and i think there's there's lessons for like from that that we can that are basically forever anywhere yeah. um but particularly in a place like Tacoma where there is a lot of folks who don't have access to space to really basic space to um home to shelter um And and so what how do we think about those lessons in terms of a place like Tacoma? I think Mm -hmm. is a a really important question. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, coming from uh, not an outsider's perspective, but for someone who is relatively new to the area, what are the things that you see? What stands out to you about Tacoma um, that is that is unique to us?
2: Um, well, like I said, these sort of like long histories, one of the things that has been so exciting to me about Tacoma is learning more about the history of the Hilltop. Mm. Um, and, um, and the ways that like the Hilltop, George P. Riley, um, who came and, uh, was sort of led the expedition to, to purchase the land in the Hilltop, who was, um, he was from Boston. He was coming from an abolitionist family. Um, and, and thinking about. The Hilltop and this particular place in Tacoma as being like a space of possibility of people seeking um, seeking freedom, seeking space to be um, and to be able to sort of grow families and prosper and and, you know, achieve, you mm-hmm. know. <clears throat>
1: yeah.
2: And um, and, th- and knowing what that meant in the moment, I mean, when they purchased the land, this was right after the end of the Civil War. Um, and th- what people were really seeking was, you know, was freedom, was the possibilities of like that particular moment and the hopes of that moment. This is before Jim Crow even really calcified. Mm-hmm. But knowing that the that this region was founded as um, as a white only space um, and still coming out here and seeing and creating spaces of safety, mm-hmm. of refuge, of and and to, to sort of co-create possibilities um, of safety within that and care. For Black communities, um, I think that there's something important about even just knowing that that has existed right. in that space, so right. that 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 energy and that blood is in the ground, um, and then also that, you know that that those legacies persist. That there's that that the hilltop is still a really precious space for Black community in any kind of history of or any sort of present too of the of the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. um, and of this region in particular. Right. But just the preciousness of that, especially given um, the incursions of gentrification.
1: Mm -hmm. I want to talk with you about gentrification in a moment. You mentioned earlier redlining, and I'm I'm wondering um, what lessons uh, we can learn from redlining in other areas and how your research since you've been here has informed the way you think about this area and what our listeners may or may not know about redlining in Tacoma and in Pierce County.
2: Yeah, well, Tacoma, like um, most cities, like all cities in the United States, was redlined. It was mapped out um, by the federal government uh, in order to um, create spaces where loans would be secured by banks, right? And it was a rating system um, to rate neighborhoods for their sort of loan worthiness um, and whether or not the federal government was going to back those loans. Um, And loans that were considered risky and neighborhoods that were sort of marked out as risky were on these maps um, marked red, um, which is why it's called redlining, And, mm-hmm. um, and loans weren't secured by the federal government in order to, um, you know, in, in the way that most loans that people get from banks are secured by the federal government. Right. That's why, um, that's why, we're, you know, we've created the mortgage sister. That's why the mortgage system developed was because of those federal backings. And so that meant that people of color by and large were locked out of, um, of purchasing homes in the ways that, uh, that white Americans certainly were and other, other folks too. So I think that, um, what the long-term impact of that, I mean, there's a lot of long-term impacts of that. Um, and you can see that you can, in many ways, most neighborhoods, you can still in some way map out what those red lines were Mm -hmm. back in, you know, from like the 1940s, you can still sort of see those in the landscape today in various ways, um, racially, uh, you know, I'm sure health outcome wise, mm-hmm. in in many many ways, right? Um, I think the sort of one way of thinking about it is that um, white Americans ten- were subsidized um, in a long long term way um, for you know because because most people in the United States, most regular sort of middle class people in the United States, our wealth is in our homes, right? And if people were denied um, this kind of subsidy from the federal government, then those legacies, that wealth was never able to be passed on. Right. And that certainly you can feel that generationally, um, because this was when, in many ways, most white Americans got um, uh, the, the sort of level of, of financial security that they continue to have. Um, just, I'm talking sort of en masse. Um, and this was denied to black Americans and other folks of color um, through the redlining system. And so you can certainly see that as well, um, not just sort of written on the landscape, but just in like sort of people's own, you know, sort of personal family histories and genealogies. It's an
1: obvious question, but it's just so that people understand, what's the long-term impact of that? If, if, you, if a family is unable to pass on wealth from one generation to the next, what's the long-term effect of that? Well, this is, I mean, myriad,
2: right? Mostly that has to do with security. There is something really important about wealth that's different than income, right? To have wealth is to have um, a measure of security against, you know, family crisis. It is to have um, something to mortgage, to remortgage, for instance, if you need money to um, go to college, to do, you know, to have other kinds of ambitions. And to not have that, the difference between having that and not having that is tremendous, is tremendous. Um, and it's, it impacts almost every sort of aspect of life.
1: Right. Um, it's long-term self-sufficiency, not just for a particular generation, but for those who come after.
2: Exactly, exactly. It's generational wealth. Right. Um, and it's passed on. It's security for your children. It's security for your children's children.
1: How have the policies changed um, with respect to redlining, or have they really?
2: I mean, well, we certainly have. There is the, the federal government no longer creates redlined maps, um, that was made illegal in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Although it's shocking to hear that it was just the 1960s when it happened. But anyway.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so these are, I mean, these are not very long ago. I mean, when we talk about generational wealth, we're talking just one or two generations here. Um, One of the things that I think is actually really important about, like in a a present day sense, is the lack of knowledge about how much that impact, like how much white wealth was subsidized. Because so much of the sort of narrative of like, why, why, why are communities unequal winds up kind of coming around to like, well, people, you know, need to work hard, pull pull up your your bootstraps. bootstraps. Exactly. And, and to have that be your sort of base understanding of why we have inequality is to have a, to have a dramatic misunderstanding of, of where we are as, as a country and where we have been. And I think, um, that narrative then winds up pushing policy to not understand the history of redlining winds up pushing policies that then obviously impact current
1: people. It's difficult to pull yourself up uh, your bootstraps if you don't have boots.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if, you know, and if uh, there's other folks whose families have many boots right. and whose, you know, families the federal government, in fact, gave boots to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Uh, yes. And so, and I think that's actually a misunderstanding, in fact, of, of white America, even more than of, of folks of color in the United States. It's a misunderstanding of where that wealth came from.
1: Again, obvious question. Um, uh, moral issues aside, why is it important that these policies change and continue to change? Why is making sure that these sorts of things are addressed?
2: Well, any society is only as strong as its weakest weakest people in many ways, right? if you have a society where there's dramatic inequality there's likely to be lots and lots of social problems i mean there that's that's a sort of truism but it but it but it carry bears out right
1: mm-hmm.
2: um where there is likely to be even even if there are some people in that society that have um a lot of resources if you have a lot of people who don't have a lot of resources that's um that's a cost. It's a financial cost, but even more, I think that's a psychic cost. There's something about, um, you lose, you lose genius. (laughs) You lose the contributions in many ways that those folks could be making because they're instead struggling to figure out their housing and their healthcare and, you know, who, and childcare, you know, I mean, if you are on a treadmill, um, trying to figure out like the sort of basics of life, um, You have a lot less sort of brain energy and life force energy to be doing the thing to be really, truly contributing in the ways that we know that are in people. Right. Um, And I think that's a loss for everybody, no matter how you slice it. Um, And I think there is also there's something there's a cost to having a society that thinks it's okay to have some people have very little when lots and lots of people when some other people have um, a tremendous amount. Mm -hmm. There is, um, there is something about that's dehumanizing, certainly about the people that dehumanizes the people who have less. Certainly that's a dehumanizing, I think, logic that leads to that conclude sort of okayness with that. But it also in some ways dehumanizes everybody. Um, it means that there is, that everybody's misunderstanding who they are. (laughs) Um, because, uh, to believe that some people deserve less, or some for some reason that it's okay for some people to, for instance, be unsheltered, then um, I think it implies all kinds of okayness about where the other everybody else is positioned to, yeah. in right. ways that um, that wind up misunderstanding e- each other, ourselves, and our entire society, right. um, in, in in ways that are violent, actually, right? That do violence.
1: So I I hear you saying that you're not necessarily talking about the redistribution of resources. You're talking about just basic fairness and equity.
2: Well, yes. And also, I wouldn't mind some redistribution of resources.
1: (laughs) I mean, at the very least. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, the level of violence that has happened in this country that has led to the dramatic inequality that we have, and we have dramatic inequality, um, certainly among like what we quote unquote First Nations, right? But just in general, we have, we have traumatic inequality, um, that is largely along racial lines, not entirely, but largely. Um, and there's reasons for that. There's historical reasons for that, that are extraordinarily violent. Right. Um, and I think there, um, is certainly something to be said for making reparations to, um, to account for that level of violence that then is generationally passed on, um, particularly for black and indigenous folks.
1: People are so uncomfortable about this issue. Why?
2: Well, I think largely people are uncomfortable with the idea that um, if you have something that someone's going to take it away <laughs> um, or with the implication, and certainly it is, um, it is um, a loaded implication, right, mm-hmm. uh, that, that some folks don't deserve all that they have. Um, and certainly people who, would, who have stuff, who have money, who have... Um, who have resources uh, might be resistant to the idea that they have those things um, in ways, the ways that they have gotten those things are, are unjust. There's something very um, uncomfortable about that implication. And certainly also it's uncomfortable, the idea that, oh, you could just take away my stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, But I think that's, that's, the sort of basic that the root gut, root of the right. gut level discomfort, although I think that tends to get sort of wrapped up in all kinds of other conversations. Mm-hmm. But if you look at sort of the heart of those
0: conversations, I think ultimately that's what's what the discomfort is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We'll be back with more of this Radical Shift discussion in just a moment. Radical Shift is an Elevate Health podcast series produced by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington. Elevate Health's purpose is to lead collective action towards an equitable and healthy Pierce County. For more information, visit ElevateHealth.org.
1: You've done a lot of work in gentrification, so I'm I'm wondering what your um, perspective is on um, what's occurring in Tacoma and other communities in Washington State as well as across the nation. Just talk to us about gentrification.
2: Yeah. I mean, Tacoma is in many ways like ground zero for some of the most dramatic gentrification we're seeing in the state of Washington. Um, um, and a lot of that has to do uh, not as much with Tacoma. I mean, it does have to do with Tacoma, but it has to do with the fact that Seattle prices have skyrocketed. Mm. The prices do actually live in the city of Seattle. So many people who um, are part of the tech industries are part of these very, very high wage, uh, high wealth communities. Um have to look elsewhere and look far, farther afield, and Tacoma um, is one of the big places that they've looked. Um, and so it means that we've got this huge upsurge of folks who um, are moving out of more expensive regions to live in Tacoma, um, middle-class folks, you know, but who have generally more wealth than um, many of the communities that they're buying in. Mm-hmm. And that's the situation we certainly have in Hilltop in in Tacoma, Um, but in other places in Tacoma too.
1: Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, well, Doc, you know, we've got these people coming down here. They're making good money. We want them to spend their money in Pierce County. That a rising tide lifts all boats, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, it's, it's better for everyone, is it not?
2: Um, Well, it certainly isn't better for communities that are priced out um, of living in the communities that they had been for for people who are priced out of living in Tacoma because they actually wind up then not benefiting from any of that sort of rising tide. Right. Because if you can't live in the community anymore, then, you know, then you're obviously not benefiting. Mm -hmm. Um, So you might say the the the. The city's uh, coffers are benefiting, certainly. I mean, the city's this, the, the tax base for the city certainly goes up. Um, but the actual humans who are being um, displaced, who have lived in, in Tacoma for a long time and can no longer afford to live here, they're not benefiting. I would say that's actually a pretty unequivocal not lack of benefit for, right. for some people.
1: Right, right. So long term um what are the implications of this i mean where does it where does it ultimately lead to
2: well i think it leads to a few places um one we um see rising rates of um of unshelteredness of housing insecurity um because just the cost of living um is going up and up um and that's not just housing it's food and some other and gas some other things but but housing is in our region a, a tremendous part of that um you know, and also we see um, really shifting demographics for a city, um, unless we make some really sort of serious interventions. I think there are ways to intervene. Um, and certainly there's um, organizations that have been making ma- major efforts to, towards intervention to create more affordable housing. Um, Tacoma Housing Authority has been um, building and building. Um, and I and I um, commend them for that, because that is part of what is kind of holding down um certain neighborhoods, particularly the Hilltop, to make sure that that remains an affordable community for many mm-hmm. people. Right. Um, but um, But sort of left unchecked. Uh, I think that ultimately, if you look forward in 20 years, many of the people who live here won't be able to afford to live here anymore, and particularly renters.
1: It is not a pretty picture. No, no. So in terms of other interventions, we talked about affordable housing. If I could give you a magic wand, what would you do? What would what would we what would we be able to achieve that could sort of address some of these issues?
2: Rent control. Rent control, um, which would allow folks who have roots in the community, um, who are already here, to stay if they if they want, and then along with that, robust regulations to make sure that some of the ways that um, Landlords try to get around rent control, uh, are in place to sort of, to, to make sure to protect tenants. Um, I think something like that, um, more, more, um, city investment in affordable housing programs. Um, and I think there, there were, um, Terra's project certainly fell apart, but I think the initial, one of the things that they had sort of floated with that was, um, was essentially a program for a right to return um, to the that that some of the people who would be first prioritized in um, their affordable housing units were people who's had who had roots in um, in the Hilltop community in order to, um, you know, in order to be able to sort of keep that a, a historically black space um, and maintain the, that not just sort of in name or in mural but in the actual living life of, of the community. Um, and, and I think that's important for a few reasons, not just, I mean, I think it's important culturally to have that space. And like I said, that is a precious, precious thing in a region as white as this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think also it matters a lot in the individual lives of folks to be able to stay where they have roots. The, um, we know that when people are displaced, from housing and have to move to different communities because they're you know they're less they're um, more affordable etc. One of the things that happens is that people's sort of systems of support wind up getting eroded. You know, if you relied on a neighbor to care for your kid, if you you know had a car share with somebody to get to work, if you, I mean, we think about like many our lives are incredibly placed and in the ways that we um, find care and well being in places, especially um, if you're not able to pay <laughs> as much money for some of those systems, I mean, we can't sort of monetize that, then the, then who you are around in the community that you've built matters enormously. Um, so we really need to sort of take those things into account if we're thinking about the costs of displacement and the costs of changing demographics and communities as they gentrify.
1: Interesting concept, this idea of rent control. And what other... Um urban areas in the country is rent control in effect and what have been the what's been the outcome generally speaking?
2: Well, cities um, like New York and San Francisco have really worked, have have ex- done done rent control. I mean, these are some of the places that have had like right. sort of the primary sort of experiments in rent control. Yeah. And, um, and I think what it has done, I mean, it certainly has allowed people to stay in some of these really dramatically gentrifying areas or areas where um, housing prices have skyrocketed. Um it also has led to a series of um, landlord sort of workarounds or uh-huh. landlord uh-huh. ways yeah. of trying-, anticipated
1: next yes. <laughs> <laughs> trying to my
2: question trying to trying to sort of finagle out of that rent control. Yeah. Um and, you know, and and I think that's that's a real problem to try and get ahead of because one of the, you know, the Landlords will do things like not just not care for an apartment, right? Like not do make upgrades or not um, fix things, trying to drive people out. Um, um, and so I think that's the kinds of things that if you're implementing rent control, and I think and I think that's um, a good idea <laughs> um, that you that, that communities also, as they do that, need to anticipate some of those um, potential workarounds that and right. resistance. Um, That landlords might make, and even in some cases, especially if, um, you know, if, well, in some cases, maybe subsidizing that rent control Mm. in order to make that, um, make that possible.
1: Make it palatable for the landlord Mm -hmm. um, so that everybody comes out whole and not one person is at a disadvantage. Yeah. Because I can, I was going to play devil's advocate again and say, you know, if I was a landlord, you know, my interest would be making a profit, I mean, of right? Of course it is, of course I mean that, yeah. That's what makes the world go around. We live in a capitalist society, but you just addressed one of those issues with that that suggestion.
2: And I think there's a motivation in some ways, hopefully for for cities to do something like that because we know that so many other sort of quote-unquote social problems, not, not, not even quote-unquote social problems that um that we see in our cities that are expensive problems mm-hmm. yes. are um are helped enormously by housing. <laughs> If people are unsheltered, any problem, any health problem, any, you know, housing insecurity, any educational problem for children, any, you know, all of these problems.
1: can Be traced right back.
2: Yeah. Well, and they balloon if you're unsheltered. I mean, anything that, you know, might be a small problem to address then becomes a tremendous problem. Um, It's very, very hard to be well or stable in in any way if you're unsheltered um, because— you just don't have the space the base with which from which to do that
1: do you see much of that happening here
2: of yes
1: <laughs> talk to us about again from the recent arrival uh perspective what 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 strikes you
2: well certainly i mean i think the the level of unshelteredness in mm. in the city of tacoma is it is extraordinary it's visible um and I actually think there's something really important about the fact that it's visible. There's a lot of cities where there's, I mean, there is in general a sort of city impulse to hide homelessness yeah. and um, and rather than to address homelessness, to hide homelessness, right? Or to sort of push it into, into margins where it's not impacting um, sheltered people. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is, um, well, that's a mistake, <laughs> first off. Um, but that's the, the that's that's I think one of the most striking things is, is sort of the visibility. Um, one of the, the things that's also been striking to me actually being here is um, the ways that there have been mutual aid work, so much mutual aid work in the city of Tacoma to, to um, where grassroots people not funded by um, by the city or by even NGOs um, are doing work to support. Um, to feed, to make sure people have food, to make sure sure people have clean needles, this kinds of things um who uh, are unsheltered. So I think that's um that's a strength in the community. But I also think there's there's an implied critique there, which is that um that much of this work really should be not you know, we shouldn't be relying on good-hearted individuals to be doing that work. Yeah. Um, um, and especially because, you know, those folks need those folks need support. Those folks need, you know, to get paid off. And they're working, you know, their jobs and then doing this work on top of that. And we can't have that, like overworking people as a system to support, to support. um,
1: That's not a long-term solution. That
2: is not, that's (laughs) not not a, that's not a sustainable solution. So, um, but that does, I think, speak to the fact that there is, um, there are, there's a lot of um, community members who are really committed to making sure that we have a, um, yeah. a more just community. And there's right. something very, very important about
1: that as well. A lot of public will here. Yeah. A lot of public will here. Yes. All right. Um, with respect to health care, well-being, and all of that, what um, concerns you? What keeps you awake at night? Is there any one or, two, one or two things that you go to bed thinking, oh, boy, if this blows up, we've got trouble?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot, actually. But I think, I mean, housing is the thing that I do most of my work on. And I think it's so deeply related to all other sort of forms of well-being. Um, So I think that's making sure that there are greater routes towards housing security for folks in the community, Mm -hmm. I think, is the thing that most, um, most in some ways keeps me awake at night. But like I said, all of that's related to so many other kinds of security, right? Food. and the fact that, you know, I live, um, I live a block away from, um, a food distribution site Mm. and every weekend there's just lines, 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 lines to get, um, this big bag of food. And, um, and I think that's just a testament to how insecure folks are, um, with getting healthy food, um, and getting food at all. And so, and that's, um, so I think that that's, that's another tremendous concern. And also, you know, Um, violence, addiction, those are the two Mm -hmm. other things, Mm -hmm. um, violence within, you know, we have, we have gun violence, um, which I think actually tends to get framed as a crime issue rather than health issue. But I think we should be framing it as a health issue, um, in terms of the actual, you know, the, the physicality of violence and also just the stress, the, um, what that does to a community to, to feel sort of under siege in many ways and not just under siege, By sort of street crime, but under siege by also, um, you know, risk of police violence, Mm -hmm. other, you know, all of these different kinds of violences. Um, So these are the many things that keep me awake at night. Okay.
1: Well, I just added to them, I'm afraid. (laughs) If you're tossing and turning tonight, you have me to to blame. Um, On the flip side of that, what gives you hope, Dr. Guizar?
2: Oh, man. Well, movements. Um, the work of, I mean, I think that the, the mutual aid work that is being done in Tacoma gives me a lot of hope. Um, knowing that, I mean, I moved here a little bit, um, after, uh, the protests of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that there still is an undercurrent of folks who are really seeking justice around um, police violence, um, and thinking really. In that process of seeking justice, I think thinking really deeply about like what do we mean by um, by protection, by safety, by and thinking about that in very very complex ways. Um, not because because if you're if you're thinking about um, for instance defunding police, then what that does is beg a lot of other questions by how, that are actually much more sort of life giving. Like how do we how do we create safe affirming um, just and hopefully loving communities. Right. Um, cause that's the, that's a sort of implicit question there. Um, which then would act create a more durable safety, not just a sort of like clamping down of safety because, um, because police are sort of barging and stopping it. Although that's not usually what police do, but, but that, um, to create a, a more, a, a, a safety that is actually about, um, a presence of, of care, of justice, of people getting the things that they need in order to live full, dignified lives.
1: I'm wondering, Doctor, if um, the city and county leaders are um, availing themselves of your wisdom. Are are you consulting with our city and county leaders? Are they seeking your counsel? No. Oh.
2: <laughs> they, they've not
1: reached out. <laughs>
2: oh. Okay. Um, but I will say something actually that I, I do think is is important and exciting about like at least the work sort of that's being done in the classrooms in or in sort of the the research rooms of yeah. UWT, which is that um, at least our community planning program, the Masters of Community Planning at UW Tacoma, um these are the big questions that I think the planning students come to those two years of study with mm. um, and the issues that they're wrestling with. Yeah. And um, and then every class that we graduate, we basically have a cohort of mm-hmm. folks who have just spent two years deeply in study and deeply in like wrestling with issues of basic justice. And most of those folks stay in the region. Most mm-hmm. of those folks become the planners and the folks that are that are de- that are kind of like, you know tuning the dials about like how how what what how things are planned in this in this city and in the region and that you know I I do find that to be very helpful
1: you're planting seeds Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you're planting seeds
2: yeah well and they and they already are seeds right they they come with the questions they're the ones who are coming with the questions
1: yes indeed all right well, Dr. Jesse Kuizar, the University of Washington, Tacoma, thanks again for being with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Come back and see us again. Would you?
2: Oh, of course. Thank you. This is lovely.
1: Please support the work of Elevate Health by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues and by leaving a rating and review. Please also like, subscribe and follow Elevate Health Podcast wherever you are listening so that you will never miss an episode. Again, Dr. Jesse Kuizar. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much.
0: This episode of the Elevate Health podcast was produced by Kelsey Horn, Robert Marshall Wells, V. Whitmarsh, and Joshua Weersma. Original music was composed by Riley Eggy, and the podcast was engineered and edited by Joshua Wiersma. Please support the work of Elevate Health by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues, and by leaving a rating and review. Please also like, Subscribe and follow Elevate Health Podcasts wherever you are listening so that you will never miss an episode.